Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to The Strange and Unusual podcast early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus and the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores, with desolation. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face, of the victim were the pest ban, which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his domains were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court. And with these he retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or a frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons. There were improvisatory. There were ballet dancers. There were musicians. There was beauty. There was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prosperio entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite, In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls of either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time, There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards, and at each turn a novel effect, to the right and left, 
In the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor, which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber in which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange. The fifth with white. The sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce seized their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company. And while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if in confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embrace three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decora of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There were some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great feat. And it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and pagancy and phantasm, much of what had been since seen in her nanny. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies, such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible. 
and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro, in the seven chambers, there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms, and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then for a moment all is still, and all is silent, save for the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays of the tripods. But to the chamber, which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly empathetic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock, and then the music ceased, as I have told. And the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened. Perhaps the more of thought crept with more time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus too it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, There were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure, which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumor of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise, and then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited. But the figure in question had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the heart of the most reckless, which cannot be touched without emotion, even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests. There are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seem now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to toe in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet, all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dappled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was bespeckled with a scarlet whore. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. "'Who dares?' he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. 
It was in the eastern, or blue chamber, in which stood the Prince Prospero, as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly, and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the Prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who, at the moment, was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the murmur had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in an unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, unattainted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of the revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the Red Death held elementable dominion over all. This is the Strange and Unusual Podcast with Alison Horrocks, and welcome to Episode 17, the conclusion to a memento mori Halloween. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different. So your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. 
And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Memento Mori, as mentioned in the previous episode, means remember death or remember you must die. And it has found its place in modern Western culture in our celebration of Halloween. With styrofoam gravestones swirled in mist from fog machines, dotting lawns to greet trick-or-treaters, plastic skeletons dangling from trees are posed jauntily, and costumed ghosts and zombies ringing doorbells, begging for treats. We flirt with facing death, while at the same time holding it at arm's length in playful denial. And this is not unlike Prince Prospero and the nobles of the Mask of the Red Death. After witnessing a devastating plague sweep through the land, in great denial of reality, they hide from the sickness within an abbey. Believing they are safe, as those just outside their walls die horrifically, they think they can conquer death, even as they mock it in their bizarre costumes and ghastly decor. The denial and belief that they've outwitted death is so great, in fact, that they gleefully take part in a masquerade ball. The seven rooms in which the party takes place are arranged east to west, like the course of the sun, and are thought to represent seven different stages of life, with the colors of the room meant to evoke those stages, blue for birth, purple for youth, green for adolescence, orange for adulthood, white for old age, violet for imminent death, and the black and scarlet room representing death itself. The last room, with its eerie light streaming through blood-red windows, is dominated by a huge ebony clock that strikes fear into the hearts of everyone there when it chimes the hour. The chiming of the clock does not disrupt the masquerade for long, however, as one and all return to dancing and celebration until it strikes midnight. The clock's chiming is a memento mori in itself, as its music disrupts all merriment to say that time is running out and death will eventually find you. Death holds a limitable dominion over all. Prince Prospero's masked ball is also reminiscent of the dance of death, portrayed in medieval paintings and murals, as a skeleton or many skeletons lead throngs of people to the grave, just as the prince leads his guests to the Red Death. Dance Macabre, this dance of death, developed after the Black Plague hit Europe, as referenced in the last episode, and it's what's inspired our images of skeletal grim reapers on Halloween. But then, another epidemic of a different sort spread through Europe not long after the plagues began to strike. Beginning in the 15th century, a sinister fear infected reactionary minds, resulting in widespread, devastating witch hunts, which lasted well into the 18th century. Thousands of people, mostly women, were imprisoned, tortured, burned at the stake, beheaded, or hanged during this period of time. And it would be through these witch hunts that some of Halloween's most endearing icons and dark imagery would be unwittingly added. Help came in establishing these symbols of Halloween when the infamous Malleus Maleficarum was published in 1487. Translated into English, the book's title means Hammer of Witches, and it was an instant smash hit, a bestseller, especially among the witch-hunting set. And within its pages, witches forever became explicitly linked to the devil. So much so, in fact, that it was claimed that witches and the devil even engaged in sexual activity. During some of these witch trials, allegations were made that the accused participated in their demonic Sabbaths on All Hallows. And there is a theory that the choice of All Hallows as a major holiday for witches and devils was no accident, but was actually done with a specific political agenda in mind. During King Henry VIII's reign, which lasted from 1509 through 1547, he sought to separate the Church of England from the Vatican a mission which continued into the reign of his daughter, Elizabeth I. And both monarchs viewed All Saints' Day as a loathsome papal holiday and issued proclamations attempting to quell its celebration, 
So linking the devil and witches with that day suited their plans just fine. Then in 1590 came the North Barrick Witch Trials, which would notably associate witches with Halloween, linking the two forevermore. When King James VI of Scotland sailed to Denmark to retrieve his betrothed, Princess Anne, storms raged at sea, making his journey a harrowing and dangerous one. Several Scots were then accused of employing witchcraft in order to prevent the marriage. This was alleged to have been done as the group of witches assembled on Halloween, where they wickedly danced in the graveyard under cover of night and sung an incantation which conjured the devil, who they then pledged their undying allegiance to. Their confessions, coerced under torture, further claimed that they unearthed corpses from the graveyard, dismembered them, tied those rotting, putrid body parts to cats, and then tossed the whole bloody mess into the sea in their attempts to summon a storm to kill the king. King James VI, who would go on to become King James I when he became the ruling monarch of England, became fixated on the threat of witches and their practices after his involvement in the North Berwick trials, and he went on to write and publish De Monology in 1597 as a sort of philosophical dissertation on magic, witchcraft, and demonology. Soon after James was made his king, William Shakespeare wrote Macbeth, in part to honor and elicit the approval of his new royal patron. Macbeth was set in Scotland, the home of his new king, and direct concepts and rituals described in demonology and also during the North Berwick witch trials were lifted to create the three weird sisters and their portrayal of the practice of witchcraft. During one of their incantations, the weird sisters famously chanted, Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. So after the infamous North Berwick witch trials and the writing of Demonology and Macbeth, both inspired by those events, Halloween was now firmly associated with witches, cats, cauldrons, brooms, and the devil. And it's the devil who remains Halloween's most controversial figure. It is believed by some historians that the development of the devil as this villainous, over-the-top, monstrous adversary of all that is Christian and good may have occurred as the church sought to revamp the old pagan horn gods into the representation of ultimate evil. And as mentioned, the devil's connection to Halloween first appears in association with witches. An example of this occurred in 1597, when Thomas Laius, a Scottish man who would be convicted of witchcraft and burned at the stake, was accused, quote, of having come upon Halloween about midnight, accompanied by his mother and many other sorcerers and witches, to the market and fish cross of Aberdeen, under the conduct and guiding of the devil, present with them all in company, playing before them on this kind of instrument, when they all danced about both the said crosses and the meal market, a long pace time, end quote. Belief that witches danced with the devil on Halloween night became so common in Scotland that there developed a myth that cats were especially tired the day after Halloween from having carried witches to their festivities with the devil the night before. With its rich and sinister lore, Halloween wasn't easily forgotten. However, it would hit a major setback when Parliament banned all festivals in England except for Guy Fawkes Day in 1647. But the eve continued to be observed in countries with strong Celtic histories, in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and the Isle of Man. Scotland, in particular, embraced the holiday's dark, romantic, and haunting ghostly ways. And it was from there that the earliest mentions of Halloween in poetry emanated, with one of the first coming from Scotland's national bard, Robert Burns. In 1785, he wrote Halloween, a poem that reveals what Halloween had evolved into, and by then, parties and fortune-telling games were the main focus of the Scottish Halloween celebration. 
Most of this fortune-telling was focused on discovering the identity of one's future spouse. With many of these rituals described in the poem, Byrne writes of a group of Halloween revelers venturing into a kale field to pool stocks, in an activity that was commonly referred to as kaling. This ritual was performed in a number of ways, but a typical way it was done was to have the fortune seeker enter the field blindfolded or backwards. And during the inspection of the chosen stock, the nature of one's future spouse was revealed. This was also done in Ireland with cabbages. There were countless methods of divination, however, with some of these rituals involving looking into a mirror on Halloween night. But many of these divinations involved belief in the wraith or fetch, which was basically the spirit of someone not yet dead. And Burns wrote about one of the more creepy rituals involving the belief. The fortune seeker enters a barn and first calls on the devil and then takes down a wench, an instrument used in winnowing corn, and simulates the act of separating corn from chaff three times. And then once this is completed, the specter of one's future spouse, the wraith, would pass through the barn. Activities surrounding acts of divination were played in Ireland during the 18th and 19th centuries as well. But there, door-to-door begging was focused on more prominently. Both the Scottish and the Irish had a great deal of folklore which centered on fairies, and Halloween was frequently featured in those stories. In Northern Ireland, people were often a bit leery about allowing children out on Halloween night due to the belief that they could be carried off by fairies. And that concern was still felt by many into the 20th century. In order to protect them against these mischievous, otherworldly creatures, children sometimes had their hair rubbed with a mixture of dry oatmeal and salt. Babies were also thought to be at risk, on Halloween, of being carried away and replaced with a fairy child. And for the infant's protection, oftentimes an object made of iron would be placed in or over their crib. In Wales, Halloween tradition included a belief in the custom of the church porch. With this custom, anyone who dared to stand by church windows at midnight on Halloween may hear the evil and slithering voice of the devil conducting a sermon within, in which he named all those who would die in the parish the coming year. Welsh women also frequently gathered at churches on Halloween, believing the flickering candlelight could offer them a glimpse into the fates. But the custom of souling, or soul-caking, was a practice which took place more universally throughout the British Isles, and is believed to be one of the earliest activities that became a Halloween tradition. This most often involved children, though at times adults engaged as well. And souling consisted of going begging from home to home, offering prayers for the souls who lived there, in exchange for food, drinks, coins, or a soul cake. Not an entirely dissimilar custom from modern-day trick-or-treat. But from its ancient and, at times, sacred roots, Halloween was certain to die a slow death, or at least remain a pretty obscure holiday if it had stayed clinging only to its Gaelic, Celtic lands. However, in the 19th century, Halloween would find a new home to settle and to grow in. A home and a young nation that was still on the search for identity. And this was a nation who developed a culture, perhaps due to a sort of adolescence insecurity, that adhered to the philosophy that bigger always meant better. Halloween was growing up and leaving home and heading out across the sea. Halloween was about to immigrate to America. In the 19th century, a German journalist summed up the American mentality when he wrote, quote, To say that something is large, massive, gigantic, is in America not a mere statement of fact, but the highest commendation, end quote. And for better or worse, once we Americans got our hands on Halloween, its growth exploded, picking up our extreme and thrill-seeking genes along the way to become one of our biggest annual celebrations. 
In doing so, however, it became almost unrecognizable to its beginnings. But even so, at its center, it still retains much of its Celtic DNA. But first, before this big American change, Halloween had to get here. And it came along with the massive waves of Irish immigrants in the mid-19th century. The Irish would also be joined by nearly half a million Scots as well, settling in the New World during the latter half of the 19th century. And these Celtic people, displaced in a strange new world, held on to their ancient customs and festivals, and embraced and shared them in a way they'd probably never done before. This time of influx of the Irish and the Scots, as well as others from the British Isles, just so happened to coincide with the emergence of the middle class in America. This new class was suddenly afforded a bit more leisure time and a little extra spending money than any other generation before. Feeling the sudden rush of their upward mobility, Americans developed an infatuation with their British cousins. Having always been a bit self-conscious of their identity as a rustic, uncultured new country, Americans had always harbored a bit of envy of the British, as they perceived them to be much more sophisticated and refined. This fascination with all things British achieved new heights when the wildly popular Queen Victoria ascended to the throne in 1837. Reports of her travels, holiday customs, fashions, and more were always being printed in publications all over America. And Victoria had a deep love for the Celtic Scottish countryside. So much so that her husband, Prince Albert, purchased Balmora Castle in Scotland as a gift for his beloved bride. In 1869, Victoria spent Halloween at Balmora Castle. And what happened that night was widely reported. Quote, As the shades of the evening were closing in, numbers of torchlights were observed approaching the castle. Dancing was commenced by the torchbearers. Dancing a huchari in fine style to the lilting strains of Mr. Ross, the Queen's Piper. After dancing for some time, the torch bearers proceeded round the castle in martial order, and as they were proceeding down the granite staircase at the northwest corner of the castle, the procession presented a singularly beautiful and romantic appearance. Having made the circuit of the castle, the remainder of the torches were thrown in a pile at the southwest corner, thus forming a large bonfire, which was speedily augmented with other combustibles, until it formed a burning mass of huge proportions, round which dancing was spiritedly carried on. Her Majesty witnessed the proceedings with apparent interest for some time." End quote. And probably not uncoincidentally, soon after this account of Victoria's Scottish Halloween, the first mentions of American Halloween celebrations began to appear. And one of the first things Americans added to the festivities in the late 19th century would become the most popular Halloween icon from then on, the pumpkin. There's a legend of a man named Jack, a blacksmith who outwits the devil, it's been told in hundreds of versions, but typically ends in Jack's rejection from both heaven and hell after his death, leaving him to wander the earth forever, with only the light emanating in his carved-out turnip to keep him from being shrouded in utter darkness. Said to be named for this legendary Jack, Jack-o'-lanterns had been connected with Halloween on the British Isles for quite a long time. And in those countries, just as in the story, turnips were the most common vegetable used in their making. Native to North America, however, was the pumpkin, which created a bigger, brighter, and more aesthetically pleasing jack-o'-lantern. And the ideal jack-o'-lantern was changed forevermore. Not long after the turn of the 20th century, young American boys began to embrace the old Irish tradition of pranking on Halloween. But this, at first, relatively harmless mischief-making eventually turned into a major problem, especially in cities, as it evolved into destructive vandalism by the 1920s, 
telephone poles sawed down, cars overturned, windows broken, and much more, increasingly became more and more the typical way of celebrating Halloween. The monetary damage reached such a high in 1933, in fact, that that year's activities, infamously, led it to being dubbed Black Halloween. But instead of just shutting the whole thing down, towns began to make efforts to turn Halloween around. Schools, neighborhoods, and civic groups began to offer children alternative activities, like costumed parties and parades on that day. And this proactive need to sanction enticing community-led, non-criminal Halloween celebrations ultimately led to our ritualized trick-or-treat. And in America, at least, by the end of the Second World War, trick-or-treating had become customary throughout the country. The very act of creating these annual rituals for Halloween in American society only further served to increase its growing popularity, even though they were originally created pretty much only as a distraction for troublemakers. But now every child expected and wanted to take part. The emerging of this holiday's new traditions spawned the Halloween industry and generated a demand for media that would create the perfect spooky atmosphere for a day the dead were anciently believed to walk among the living. In the 1950s, Universal Studios released its 52 horror films, which included their old monster classics, Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman, and The Mummy, to air on TV. And this kept the roster of scary characters who would now be associated with the holiday expanding. By the early 60s, airings of old horror films presented by creepy costumed hosts who became minor celebrities, splashed across black and white screens every weekend. Additionally, songs like 1962's The Monster Mash climbed the charts. Halloween had found fertile soil in the post-war economic boom and thrill-seeking culture of America, in which it grew rapidly. But in those early decades, Halloween had pretty much been relegated to children's activities. This would change, though, as the nostalgic baby boomer generation grew to adulthood. Halloween had belonged to them as children, and they weren't willing to give it up. The reclamation of Halloween for adults began in earnest, and culminated in popular culture with the decidedly unchild-friendly film John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978. Halloween now came to be for everyone as adults donned costumes, some leaning toward the sexy, and partied with creepily named cocktails in hand. And I have to confess, I'm one of those adults who never stopped celebrating Halloween, as I pretty much wear costumes every year, and often attend spooky, booze-fueled events, like the Hawthorne Halloween Ball in Salem, Massachusetts. But that confession, I can't imagine, is a real surprise. Though kids are still very much included in the sweetly spooky side of Halloween, for teens and adults, the fright factor of activities has just continued to increase, as more and more bloody haunted attractions spring up everywhere. Halloween has become big business, at least in America. Though Halloween is not new, its celebration is definitely a modern creation, and one that has amazed and sometimes bewildered many as it's swiftly grown in observance. What is it about Halloween that has made it take so strong and quick a hold? What's made it just so damn irresistible? Modern Halloween has developed characteristics which are both dark and light. It's deeply morbid and terrorizing on one side, but it's also playful and fantastical. On Halloween, the macabre, death, and decay become things we coquettishly wink at. The greatest fears associated with humanity are injected into our lives at Halloween. It's a time designated to face death and our demons, but it is done in a sort of light-hearted, mocking way. And as we dress up in scary costumes and immerse our minds in the dread and panic of horror films and haunted attractions, we are literally looking our fears in the face. It is done, however, on our terms. And that can feel very empowering 
18th century Irish statesman Edmund Burke once said, Terror is a passion which always produces delight when it does not press too close. Burke, it seems, understood something of the nature and psychology of fear. The fear produced during activities like those surrounding Halloween can trigger our fight-or-flight response. And the chemicals that create that response are also involved in other positive emotional states, such as happiness and excitement. It creates a natural high, a rush, a high arousal state. But why? When we experience a legitimate threat, positive emotions are not achieved. So what's the difference? Turns out the difference between these controlled, scary activities and actual threats has everything to do with context. When the thinking part of our brain communicates with the emotional part of our brain, telling it that we're actually okay, that we're in a safe space, we then immediately shift the way we are experiencing that high arousal state, and we switch from a state of fear to one of enjoyment or excitement. We can only truly enjoy a scary situation when we feel that we're in a safe environment. To enjoy that surge of adrenaline, endorphins, and dopamine, that comes with fight or flight, we must be certain we are safe. This is often seen in haunted house attractions. These places trigger our senses through startle scares, and our senses are tied directly to our fear response, which trigger physical reactions. But with lightning-fast processing, our brains quickly communicate that these scares are not, in fact, real threats. And within an instant, you go from screaming and jumping to laughing and smiling. The key component in being able to enjoy horror and the scary is a sense of control. When we control the when and where in a perceived protected space, we are able to overcome the initial fight or flight rush, leaving us with a sense of satisfaction and confidence in our ability to confront those things that terrify us. And yet... As we acknowledge the morbidity of Halloween and revel in symbols of death, most of us don't take it very seriously. We oddly expose ourselves to existential fears, but only do once they've been dressed up in fantasy and burlesque, contorted into mere caricatures of death, safe parodies. Though the Celts celebrated, feasted, and often drank to intoxication during Samhain, the way they viewed death and interacted with it during their festivities, was quite different to us. They took it very seriously. But why so different? And why do we so often play with death like it's a toy on Halloween? Sigmund Freud wrote, It is indeed impossible to imagine our own death, and whenever we attempt to do so, we can perceive that we are, in fact, still present as spectators. Hence, at the bottom, no one believes in his own death. Or to put the same thing in another way, in the conscience, every one of us is convinced of his own immortality. It may be nearly impossible to conceptualize our eventual earthly non-existence. However, the contemplation of death, the purposeful activity of turning our minds to memento mori, has shown to be a beneficial, valuable exercise. Because a grave awareness of our mortality pushes us to live our good life, We become aware of our physical health and are more likely to take care of our bodies. We work to build and nourish enriching relationships with those around us. And once the brevity of our time sinks in, it also drives us to finally write that book that's been on our minds forever, or complete our studies, or travel to Africa like we've always dreamed of. We begin to do the things we've always wanted to do and tackle what have been called our immortality projects. And this generally benefits ourselves as well as those around us. The medieval European murals of skeletons dancing the sick, rotting, and dying to their graves were not painted purely to concentrate on the dreadful and ghoulish. Instead, the message was to live today, enjoy your time, don't waste it, your time is short. The Dance Macabre was really a celebration of life, not death. Author and philosopher Sam Keane wrote, Contemplation of the hour of our death is, paradoxically, the tincture that adds sweetness to mortality. We may never be able to reach the depth of devotion and thought to death that the ancient Gaelic Celts did, but this is largely due to the fact 
that they were living in a world of pre-science. All was a mystery. Magic was real. Life was incredibly fragile. And the unknown encompassed much more for them than it does for us. For them, all was cloaked in a dark fog of pre-enlightenment. But the farther we've come from the magic and mystery of our past, the more we've come to need Halloween. Autumn is that time of the year when everything grows brilliant. A beautiful fire glows from every tree just before all of nature dies. It's no accident Halloween is our celebration just as everything is dying. Our senses are heightened just before the dark time of the year. Life is shown to be at its most breathtakingly spectacular just before death. And all this culminates in the celebration of Halloween. It is simply magic. In The Halloween Tree, Ray Bradbury, invoking our autumn senses, deftly describes the world on Halloween. And every time I read it, I think, I can't imagine a world without Halloween. The wind outside, nested in each tree, prowled the sidewalks in invisible treads like unseen cats. Tom Skelton shivered. Anyone could see that the wind was a special wind this night, and the darkness took on a special feel, because it was all Hallow's Eve. Everything seemed cut from soft black velvet, or gold, or orange velvet. Smoke panted up out of a thousand chimneys like the plumes of funeral parades. From kitchen windows drifted two pumpkin smells, gourds being cut, pies being baked. Until next time, you can join the Strange and Unusual podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Links to all those can be found on the website, thestrangeandunusualpodcast.com. And remember, as Poe said, there is no exquisite beauty without some strangeness in the proportion. So, stay strange. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Strange and Unusual podcast early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.